Doomtown gets reloaded. D&D is next. Chris pretends like he can talk about 13 games in 13 minutes. And Hex gets smacked. On Strange Assembly episode 135, An Ornamental Arrangement. I'm Chris Stevenson. Here with me today are Mike Cook. Yep. And newcomer to the podcast, Rich Bowers-Dean. What's going on? Hey. And we're going to talk about Doomtown. We're going to talk about D&D next. I'm going to try to blitz through a bunch of games that I've played. And at the end, to uh, try to avoid boring to tears, those who don't want to hear about it, we are going to talk about the recently filed lawsuit by Wizards of the Coast against the digital TCG slash MMO Hex. By popular request, I'm not going to talk about how awesome Mass Effect is for another half an hour. Because really, I listened to that episode and I and I thought I did not really go into enough about why it was awesome. Which I really could do for, for quite an extended period of time. But Yes, but Chris... Most people already know. I know. Hour. <laughs> I've, I'm just a latecomer, but that's that's how much it is. Well, because, right, you guys know me. I am not a gusher, right? Yeah. I am not. So when I say that something is, to me, like, great, that, I mean, you may still think I'm completely wrong, but, you know, I mean it. <laughs> yeah. I say it's really good. I, this, is, this is not idle praise being keeped. But everyone here on this recording at least, has played Dungeons and Dragons. I think the first RPG I ever played was basic D&D out of the rules cyclopedia, where it was, I don't know, what, 36 levels or something random like that, all in one big fat book? 30 30? Wow, you have better memory than I have. Uh, I think I've played them all. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, right, so we had D&D... 3rd and 3.5, which I thought were awesome. Then we had D&D 4th, which I thought kind of stunked, and, and then D&D basically got killed by its own system, enhanced in the form of Pathfinder. So they basically spent, what, a year and a half, give or take now, trying to get D&D back in the game? Has, has it been that short of a time? Because yeah, I was... I, I feel like I, I was on the beta test for this in the beginning, and it just... I remember doing it, and I was, like, not too thrilled with it. And, uh, you know, I understand they've made a lot of changes to it, so... Well, yeah, I think that they've... Comp- I mean, they've drastically changed it since the first beta test, so... Yeah, it, it was, like, a year and a half, or maybe even almost two years, because I remember them announcing it, and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is cool. And they're like, oh, we're going to beta test it for a really long time, and I was just like, ugh. But no, uh, no, because I play-tested it in probably gaps of like six months or so like every other release or something like that right Um, yeah they changed it a lot when i played it at gen con last year it was an absolute blast and they still had not gotten it to final form so i'm very excited i mean it it's one of those things like oh would it have been nice to have gotten it a year ago yeah but i i think to some extent have to applaud them for sitting down and taking the time to try and get it right rather than just trying to push something out because they, other than classic AD&D reprints, they have basically not sold product for the last couple of years. Yeah. I mean, because when they announced D&D Next, 4th edition just died. Yeah, it really did. And for me, I really enjoyed 4th edition. I thought it was, uh, 
it was it was nice for what it was. I wasn't too sold on 3.0. 3.5, yeah, it was a lot. I mean, they fixed a lot of things, and uh, I enjoy it more playing as the Pathfinder system. I never really saw why they needed to go from 2.0 to 3.0 to 4.0 in a matter of years. So it's really nice to see the fact that they've taking such a long time reworking it, revamping it, and getting it back to the game that is the pinnacle of, of role-playing games. Well, uh, t- 2.0 to 3.0 is actually a fairly interesting story that I heard, that, that I wrote, was reading on a forum with someone who was involved, and I cannot remember the name, unfortunately, where basically 3.0 came out where Dungeons & Dragons had almost died. It was when TSR was doing really, really badly, and uh-huh. 3.0 basically saved it. In fact, that's why they had the open gaming license, because they're, you know, it's somewhat of a Hail Mary. People now go, why would you ever do that? Well, because they kind of had... Well, part part of why they did that, and I know... I, and you know what? Okay, first, I, I don't know what, what Paizo's actual money is, and so a lot of people... I've heard people say now that the real money for Pathfinder is in the Adventure Paths, which I, I don't know, but certainly historically... Adventures were relatively poor sellers. Like you had to have adventures, or at least yep. the perception was you had to have adventures for your product, but they were really low margins and it sold a really small number of copies. And so I know part of the point of the open gaming license and the D20 was that, hey, we can just make the core high volume products, then all these other people can go and make adventures. And so. Yep. The adventures can be out there that our product needs, but we don't have to deal with these low-margin things. Because especially Wizards, and then especially once they're owned by Hasbro, they do have a more corporate mindset in that they actually care about profit margins. They are not going to be, well, this product isn't losing any money, so let's keep on making it. They're going to look at a product and be like, its profit margin is 2%. Yeah, I don't think so. Kill it. Well, and they were making so little profit, you know, it's one of those things, once they got incorporated in, it's, well, not incorporated, but, you know, once they're part of that big corporate, it's like, okay, we need some profitable stuff. The TSR D&D, not that it was TSR anymore, was not making money. I think there have actually been stretches. Wizards, Wizards, I, I think because of magic, has pretty good profit margins. It's just a question of how much of the company's other product lines are doing well enough. And I think there's a reason why you see them not really trying with random CCGs so much anymore. They still got Kaijudo. They do, they do, which is, it's, I mean, and that's partially because Kaijudo is just a redo of Duel Masters, which does not, they don't make for the US market anymore, but they still make it for Japan because it makes a bunch. And that, and that, and you can see that there too, like they have a Japanese TCC, TCG division, which makes just Duel Masters, <laughs> and, <laughs> and then Gaijudo. It used to make other things, but anyhow. So D and D next, or well, it's just D and Dungeons and Dragons now, but we'll just call it 5.0 or D and D next. Uh, right, the beginner box starter set, whatever they call it, comes out in July. The first adventure and the player's handbook come out. I mean, they're, they're Gen Con releases as far as I can tell. Yeah, they've already confirmed it. Mike Merle's confirmed it on Twitter. Okay, yeah. Their current schedule is then for the Monster Manual to come out in September, 
and the DMG comes out on my birthday in November. So it's a nice little present. Yes, yeah, and there's some others. Oh, that's right, because in October is another is their Rise of Tiamat adventure, which it's it's the second half of the Horde of the Dragon Queen. So that's D and D next. We've talked about Doomtown Reloaded coming back. That's a, they're calling it an ECG. It's the same thing as an LCG, except LCG is trademarked, so they can't call it that. But, you know, a card game where you customize your own deck and the company periodically, every month, every three months, whatever, comes out with new cards, but it's not collectible or trading. You just buy the expansion and you get everything and, and you move on with your life. AEG is doing that with Doomtown, but one of the questions has been what they're doing with their box set, and I think that AEG has now announced what their packaging is for that. So the basic box of Doomtown is going to have two of each card in the set, one of each of the faction, uh, like the boxes, and one each of the red and black jokers. So what they're saying is you need two basic boxes to get your play set of cards. Or you can get the deluxe box, uh, which has everything and then some. Four of each card, one of each outfit, two of each of the Jokers, and there's supposed to be some more stuff in there. They haven't given us a price yet. Who knows when that'll happen, but I'm guessing fairly soon because these are supposed to be on sale at Gen Con. Yeah. The, the basic box was already spoiled by somebody, so it's 40 bucks. Which is what you'd expect, because yep. I think Cool Stuff has it for like 25 already. But nobody has deluxe pricing. Right, and uh, I do know that, that Todd spoiled what the box actually looks like today on uh, on Facebook, which is the windy uh, art that says Doomtown Reloaded. Looks, you know, like standard LCG uh, box size, so like whatever your Netrunner box, you know, the, the box that got you to the game or Star Wars, you know, it's about that big. Yeah, and, and for the, the sake of clarity, let's see, we've got, for people who are not old school Legend of the Five Rings players, when Rich says that the Doomtown box contains one of each faction box, he means the, the faction outfit, the starter card <laughs> for the faction. I forget some of you are young whippersnappers. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's going to have one of each of the, the four the four factions that you can belong to at the start of the game, and I'm sure those of us who have played Doomtown in the past are praying like crazy we'll see more factions as time progresses. I think it'll be a while till you, you see more of that. I think they'll, they'd want to make sure it gets nice and steady and, and on a firm foundation as is before they'd add more. Right, I'm not guessing anything would show up before six months at the earliest. Yeah, I think mm, next year. Gen-, Gen Con 2015, earliest for the possibility of a new faction. Would not be surprised. Yeah, uh, and Todd is Todd Rowland, who's the AEG marketing director and a, a board game producer. So, th- now this is interesting, because I know I had said before that, well, there's no way I'm going to end up with the the Doom Down, Doomtown Deluxe set, because... Well, I'd I'd want to start out playing it normally before I'd pay some premium price to get the fancy stuff, and then by the time I decide I wanted that, they'll all be sold out. But if they actually, you just get to buy one of those instead of two of the normal ones, that that actually could uh, make a difference. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm I'm very interested to see 
how the new restriction of you can only have four of one exact what value suit and value in a deck will do because it may, it may not make it where you need as many of a copy. I could be entirely wrong though. Well, yeah, yeah, but you're still gonna you're still gonna want four of each card. You know, there's gonna be some deck that you're gonna want to put four of this particular card in, especially at the start when you presumably have less options. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think the start's probably the biggest thing, but they are still they're unique within your own play area. So sometimes redundancy is not. Actually, I don't know. I, I think Rich, you've probably played the most Doomtown out of the three of us. Uh, how much how much uh, redundancy is there usually in those decks? Not a lot, from what I recall. I mean, it's, it's been a while, and you know, I got into it briefly, and then went to L five R. But I want to say mostly it was strikes and shootout actions, because you're. I mean, when your guy dies, he's dead. You can't bring him into play. Right, and shootout so, actions aren't going to run into uniqueness. Right. So yeah, it was mostly like you know deeds. So for L5R, it'd be holdings and, uh, and shootout actions, where the only cards you might have multiples in there. Yeah, well, but that's the thing, like, right? It only takes one. If there are three cards you want to have four of in your deck, you're going to need four of... That's one of the things about it not being collectible, is that you can't, or it's very difficult to just go get, oh, two of this one card. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's a little bit more about Doomtown Reloaded, which will also see at Gen Con this year. Now, the next thing I want to try to do, which is going to be a total failure, is that I have a list of about 13 things that I have gotten to the table that we have not talked about. And there is no way that we can do a full, overly detailed Chris discussion of 13 different things. And so... I would take as my model Tom Vassell in the Dice Tower. Sometimes he'll do, you know, 10 games in 10 minutes, 20 games in 20 minutes. Pretty sure that that is not physically possible for me. But I am going to take these and I am going to to see how painfully short of that standard I can fall. Because he, he always sets himself like 17 games in 17 minutes and then does it in 14. It's pretty impressive. So let's uh, let's see, Lords of Vegas. This is a a dice game where you were set in Las Vegas. You control hotels. On each turn, you flip up a card, which indicates a particular spot in Las Vegas that gives you some sort of control over that spot. Those spots that you've put your markers on, you later have the ability to build hotels. Over the course of the game, you start to fill up the spots. You have hotels of different colors. And the way you battle for control of these hotels is that when you build a hotel, you put a die on the spot. And the number of pips you get to put on the die determines how expensive it is. And so over the course of the game, you have to try and figure out when it's best to change the color when you want to combine hotels. You can pay to reorganize the hotel, which makes everybody re-roll the dice. And possibly, if you have three low dice and somebody has one high dice, they were the boss of the hotel. They got all the victory points but you've got a pretty good chance of being higher than them because you've got more dice than than they do. Uh, definitely a lot of randomness in it when the cards come up when you're rolling the dice, but it's one of those games that has a lot of, of die rolling, and no one roll is the end of the universe, so your luck can tend to even out over the course of the game, which is a 
positive in because it, 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 I think it's bad if you have a game that has a very small number of die rolls and then they're just tremendously important. So thumbs up to Lords of Vegas. Played Mundus Novus, which is a card-based trading and pirates game. So it's New World, Mundus Novus, right? New World, set in the Caribbean. On each of your turns, you flip up these differently numbered cards. Each one represents a good, but who cares? They're one through nine, and then a wild card of ink and gold. And you can either try to buy developments out of a card row, or if you've got lots of the same thing, or... If you have lots of different things, then you can try to cash them in for doubloons, which are victory points. You don't actually ever use your doubloons to buy anything, which makes it weird. But the things that you buy will be the things that generate doubloons every turn, so they're victory points every turn, or things like ships that let you draw an extra card every turn. And this game seemed pretty promising, but it did not take a lot of playing for us to feel like this strategically it was kind of degenerate. Because you would just sort of try to get three ships immediately, and if you had them and other people didn't, then once you have eight cards in your hand every turn, you could just cash it in for 15 or 20 doubloons when the victory point total is 75, the trigger game end. So, seemed good at first, but did not work out so well in the end, we thought, so thumbs down to that. Coal Baron is a Euro that came out last year. In this game, each player has a mine shaft at a coal production facility. And in standard Euro style, you are going to be using worker placement. Your workers can get you money. They can expand your mine and put new little mine carts and new little bits of coal for you to bring up. You can take contracts. You fulfill your contracts. What a surprise. And you get some victory points then. But the game is played over three turns, and at the end of each of the turns, you get victory points for having done the most or second most of something. At the end of the first turn, you get it for having contracts where you deliver a certain kind of coal. At the end of the second turn, you get points for that, and you get points for having delivered the most number of contracts with different kinds of of methods, and then... On the third round, you get it for having lots of, of empty mining carts in your mind because you've, when you add the mining cart to your mind, it's, it's full and you have the cube on it and then you pick the cube. Uh, there's a couple of distinctive things. One of the things you can get with your workers is action points in your mine. You'll have to move your mine sh- your elevator up and down and picking up the coal costs point, cost points and then moving it, it costs points. And then the way the worker placement works on the board is that everybody has a lot of workers. You have 13 or 18 workers. Uh, How many you have depends on the player count. And for most of the things, there are lots of different spots that do the effect. There are four different contracts. There's four different action spots. There's eight different minecart spots. There's four different money spots. But a lot of them are going to be in descending order of of value. You know, there's one mine spot. There's one... Yeah, action mine spot where you get 10 points and then 8, but you can bump other people out of their spots. If I early on go to the 10 action point spot with one of my workers, well then later you can assign two of your workers there and you'll still get to take the action. And so as the turn progresses, you have to figure out, is it worth it to you to go early to the very best one of the spots and later on... Is it going to be more efficient to use one guy to get 
a mediocre version or use two guys to get the best version or three guys. And so the balance kind of changes as the, the turn goes on. Definitely only a game for people who want your Euro worker placement points manipulation. But I thought that, that Cole Baron was, was quite good. Definitely liked it. Would definitely recommend it. Another game that came out at the end of 2013, another Euro, Lewis and Clark. Definitely a very hot game right now. Over the course of this game, you are trying to move your scout from St. Louis over to the western coast of the United States. And over the course of the game, you, you do two sorts of things, which is you're collecting resources and you're using Indian guides to accomplish different tasks for you. And you want to do this in a, in a fairly efficient way because eventually it's one of these games where you play cards out of your hand and then they stay out until you pick them back up. But when you pick them back up, if you have not used things efficiently and you still have a bunch of resources or a bunch of Indian scouts that are, are weighing you down and make it harder for you to travel, then it takes a lot of time for you to move and set up your camp. It's encampment when you pick that up, and so it can drag your scout back. And so you have to make decisions at some point between using everything to maximal efficiency or maybe the actual most efficient thing to do is not bothering to take your last action and maybe leaving a card or two in your hand and taking a time hit, but getting your best actions back better. I can see why people like this a lot. For me, it was a positive, but I don't think it's as as great as a lot of people is. I I did not, and you'll hear this again a little bit in when I talk about Manhattan Project, even though I like Sulkin, which is just all about the timing of when you're picking up and placing your workers, I kind of feel like I'm not enthused about games where there's a lot of other stuff going on, but then it can be hugely important when you pick up your workers, and then just like a little bit of timing off will just completely end the game. So Lewis and Clark, I am positive on this, not terribly positive, but I think a lot of people will like it. I played Lady Alice. That's a deduction game. It has something to do with Sherlock Holmes and some kids, like maybe they're the Baskerville games. You have four clues. You take turns guessing, and then people place deduction tokens. You're it's almost less about actually getting the accusation right. It's, I mean, it's clue in that literally you've got a, an item and a person and a location and then a time. But it was more about betting than actually getting it right. And uh, you know what? There's a lot of decent deduction games out there. I, I do not see a, a need to go with that one. I would take a pass on Lady Alice. Here's another strange one. Storage Wars. That's right. I played a mass market game based on the television show storage wars and in this show basically the company a and e or whoever it is seeds a bunch of stuff in storage lockers and then they have people go out and bid on them and act all surprised when they find interesting and valuable things instead of a bunch of useless junk and so in the game there are these four storage lockers and you have three tokens that represent different items of value or can be penalties like there's black mold in this locker nothing is worth anything and then you put them in the locker, and then over three rounds, you have to bid on... There, there's three rounds of tokens and lockers, and you, you bid on it, and you try to uh, you try to end up with the most value, you know, pay a little for stuff that has a lot, try to figure out where people are putting good things, how much is it worth to overbid, 
it's nothing innovative or exciting in particular about it. Uh, we got it because uh, you know we, we got it from my my brother-in-law because he likes the show. But I have to say, it actually involves real gaming principles and real decision making, which is not what I was expecting out of something from some reality show, some television reality show based thing. So I'm not saying you should you know, rush out to buy Storage Wars because there are better auction games you should get. But you're at some family gathering and somebody has their their shelf of like terrible mass market games. This is one that you can actually play and will have actual gaming principles. So don't laugh at it. Manhattan Project. This is another worker placement game. Each player is a wannabe nuclear power and you are trying to build atomic bombs. Every time you build an atomic bomb, it's worth victory points. So you start out with normal workers, and then you can assign to different spots and get engineers and get scientists. You have to get plans for a bomb. You have to get enough fuel for your bomb. The thing that I was talking about earlier with the timing of your workers being very important is, one, there's the aspect that you put out, you put out your guys, and you put out some guys, and you put out some guys, and then eventually you have to pick them all back up. And it's variable when you'd have to pick them all back up because the buildings that you buy go on your own player card. And when you're assigning, you can assign one guy out on the normal board and then as many guys as you want to your own building. So it's not just play one guy a turn. And so that's okay as far as the timing goes because it matters when you pick up because then the next player gets the opportunity to grab a spot that you just vacated. What I was not a big fan about as far as the timing was, though, is that one of the spots is spying. And so you can get to the point where, like, you assign a guy to the spy spot, and then it lets you assign three workers to other players' boards. So if you're on the spy spot, when you pick up all of your workers, you're probably going to clear out your own personal player board, too, which means that Whoever goes next is probably going to be, unless you know they have no workers or, or very few workers, is now going to be able to take the spy spot and then assign a whole bunch of guys to your player board, which then makes you horribly inefficient to whatever it is that they have to pick up, which as a mechanic I did not like. You also had the ability to kind of lock down the contractors, which are a temporary worker resource, and I'm generally not a fan of games that kind of let you almost accidentally, like it's not really part of the game design, but you have the ability to lock down, lock somebody out of a resource, because that usually generates a negative play experience. So the base game was okay, but as you can tell, clearly not something I'm going to be going back and, and looking to play. I would be cautious about the expansion. It had some good things like Nations, which were things that really specifically made you, like, your India, your the United States, your Israel, or, or whatever power. And I thought that was a positive, because it's, it's basically giving you a faction. But there was also, like, a hydrogen bomb part of it, which is kind of like a doubler for a normal bomb. So it turned the entire game into, you need 60 points to win. So it was all about, I need to get a 30-point bomb, and then I double it. And just whoever does that first win. So I definitely would not play with that little mini part of the expansion. If I, you guys falling asleep yet? Come on. No. 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 Oh my gosh. Dice Masters. This is absolutely a big, huge new hotness. First of all, it is a collectible dice game. So 
on the one hand, I personally clearly do not have problems with collectible games. I've played a lot of them. I play Magic. I, I play L5R now. So I do all sorts of stuff like that. But if you are the sort of person who does not like collectible games, be cautious about people talking about how, oh, but it's only 99, it's only a dollar for one pack. Well, that may be true, but there are still ultra rares that show up less than once a booster box and that cost you like $70 on the secondary market. So if you actually end up needing to use one of those, watch out. Chris? Yes. Did I, did I just hear you talk about a collectible dice game? Yes. Yes, it's pretty. It's pretty legit. Yes, yes, and it's no, no, and it's and it's very hot. So it is. No, I, I, I'm sure it is. I'm just trying to remember. God, was it the the mid dragon dice? Oh, yes, dra- yes, that did not do well. There was also a Star Trek collectible dice game. That's because both of those. Well, I don't know about the Star Trek. I heard it was okay, but the dragon dice one was garbage. Yes, and was one of the the things that was killing. It wasn't directly killing TSR, but that was one of the things when TSR was kind of producing things that no one wanted to buy, like Spellfire and Dragon yeah. Dice, that resulted in them, at, and they were going to go bankrupt and Wizard bought them. I cannot tell you how many people have come up to me, oh, Spellfire was an okay game. No, it was not. It was, it was terrible. It was really not. It was awful. It was, what are you it talking was, oh. about? You could, you could make it so the game never ended. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I want to do that, I'll just play Honor versus Dishonor. <laughs> No, that game eventually comes to an end. <laughs> yes, because there's a time limit in tournaments. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's slow down on Dice Masters. Have you played Quarriers, Rich? No. Okay. There are some similarities there. So, Quarriers was a dice-building game like Dominion was a deck-building game. And so you would start with a an initial set of some dice, and you'd roll those, and they would produce resources, and then you'd use them to buy more dice. For Marvel Dice Masters you start with this common pool of dice, and then you get to bring along, I think it's for the full game with a fully constructed deck or whatever they call it, you get to bring along eight superheroes. You have eight different cards. Each card represents a hero. Different heroes have different versions. So, like, there are four different versions of Wolverine, and you can pick which one you want to play with. You can only play with one, or or one version of, of Wolverine. That, that's not entirely true. It isn't? No. There's only five super rares in the entire set, or ultra rares or whatever. Uh-huh. So th- there's a common, uncommon, and rare of, I think, everybody. So the only ones who actually have four are people who have super rares or the ones who you get three of the cards in the starter anyway. Okay. Well, but I thought Wolverine was one of the ones that had a super rare. I He might. So, so he might be one of the ones that has four, but there's only like four or five that actually have a super rare. Uh, yeah, most of them have three, right? right. So so for each of the heroes, you have several different versions, and when you open a a pack, you get, I think, what, one die and one card? Or maybe... No, no, you get two two cards and two dice. Yeah, Yeah. two cards and two dice, and they match it. But so so when you play the game, the way it works when you roll the dice is that about, give or take, half of the sides of the dice will produce energy, and half of the sides of the dice will have a character on it and for the characters for the for the ones that you have to buy as the game goes on they'll have level one two or three and you'll have the little card there that tells you any special powers that the die has and then on the die it'll have three numbers the summoning cost and the attack and the defense and then a symbol so you know that it's storm or nightcrawler or captain america or whoever you roll your dice you buy dice when you buy dice they go into your discard pile 
and then eventually they cycle back into your die bag and then you can randomly pull them out and have have better stuff. A lot of people really like this. If you've been paying an excessive amount of attention to Strange Assembly, you know that I hated Quarriers. I thought it was not good. Actually, my review on BGG was titled Just Not Good. So Marvel Dice Masters is definitely better than Quarriers, but I still just did not enjoy it that much. I still felt like there was a real runaway problem that if you just get some good die rolls early on and then you get the good dice and you get like your good dice then you just sort of quickly snowball and can build an an almost insurmountable advantage and i think that there are some definite balance issues between some of the heroes so but but again lots of people really like this so can I offer a counterpoint since yes. I actually do really like this and I, I bought a starter, which is probably one of the 10 that made it to the state <laughs> and like three fourths of a, of a box of booster is because it's not really a box. It's like one of those big tall things that gravity feed Yeah, is, is what they call them. And they didn't have an open one. So I just took the one that was the most full. But anyways, so yeah, I think there are definitely some disparities between power, but th- there's a couple of things that they do to balance it. For instance, they actually have two main different modes of play if you're doing outside of the starter. So there's one that's six cards and 15 dice, because each of the cards tells you a maximum number of dice that you can pick for it. Yeah, you can't just have 20 copies of Wolverine Knucklehead. Right, and a lot of the more powerful ones actually reduce it so you only can have three, or at least a couple of them do. For instance, there's a Nick Fury that every time you hit with an Avengers character, you do double damage, which... It's pretty big, but there there are a few things that kind of redeem it for me. One is that the actual basic die that you start with, you start with eight of them or or ten of them, whichever. Yeah, ten, I think. Yeah, ten, because you you pull five each. So four sides are one of each of the specific energy. One's a wild that you can use for any energy, and then the sixth side is a pawn, which is a zero-cost one-one minion that you can put into play. The nice thing about that is basically you roll chump blockers. And one of the hard things to get in this game that I've seen is that, really, you just want to put the pawns into play, and unlike Warriors, where you're forced to attack, and then you score points based on who's ever out, whoever is left out, you can just keep things in the field zone before attacking. Whenever you attack with something, if it's successful, it goes into the used zone like it did with Warriors, so you don't have to worry about too much about, oh, well, this 5-5 is going to keep hitting me turn after turn. But if it gets knocked out, while they're doing combat, because you can actually block in this game. Or you can choose to let it go through, unlike in Quarriors, where you just took all the damage as much as you could. And then if it gets destroyed that way, it goes into your active pile, so the next time you roll, you get to include it in your five dice. Also, the um, the re-roll mechanic, which is after you roll your dice, you can choose any of your dice to re-roll once. So you have to do it all at once, but you can choose any number of them. Those factors alone along with the fact that you can choose your team and you can really build the costs into it. It's a lot harder with the starter because there isn't enough there isn't enough variety in the costs. But if you build enough variety into the costs, it, it really does help to mitigate the, oh, I can't play anything, or, oh, I didn't get my best cards. And it really does feel like it has more of a, I don't know, almost like a magic type of feel as far as going head-to-head. Most of the games I've played are about magic length. They're about 10, 15 minutes or so. So even if it snowballs, it's not that fast. It's not like Warriors where it snowballs, but it still takes like 30, 45 minutes to snowball. 
Oh no no no! Uh, yes, much much better than Aquarius. And you're right, both of those are are mitigating factors. If you're being forced to chump to stop damage, it increases your dice pool for the next turn, and and the reroll lets you reduce the chance that like, oh, I I finally got to buy my awesome die, but it right. just never comes up with the good version of the character. Right, and the other thing I think that's really interesting is the global. But I mean, you also have actions which anybody can buy from. You pick two actions, and they pick two actions. And it's from a universal pool of cards that you get in the starter. Like, everybody has all of these action cards, and you put red and blue and yellow and green cards under them, and they, you have dice from the starter that match them. Yeah. But there's, there's also global abilities, which is anybody who is playing can pay the energy to get the effect on the card, including your opponent. Normally, only you can draft out of your cards that you pull other than the action cards which both of you can pull from those also add a very interesting dynamic uh, because it's hey i can spend this to you know get this really good effect but my opponent might be able to use it better than i can so so they're usually pretty powerful but they also come with a risk factor yeah i did not like the globals because they Especially for the, like the with the kind of game you're going for, this like you're saying the short 10, 15 minute thing. I thought that they were way too much on board complexity. You play a game where there's four globals out. One increases power and one or one increases defense and one negates damage from a block character. It made the combat math really messy. And it's not like I can't play complex games, but I. I, I don't know. It's like there's sort of a re. I want to say like it's sort of a reason why like magic doesn't do a lot of onboard combat tricks at common because you don't want draft to be flooded with that. Right. Well, I mean, I think the Marvel Masters is still. It's got a lot more randomness than like a magic your average magic game or whatnot. It's really intended to be that way. It's going to keep people in. That's one of the good things about random uh, lesser skilled people typically. But it's really an opportunity. It's, I have to see what I roll, and then I might not even be able to use my global effect, or they might not be able to use their global effect. All right, that was Marvel Dice Masters, the first out now, and I use that term loosely since they're on their fourth printing or something, and they sell out instantaneously. There's a, an expansion, Uncanny X-Men, I think, planned for later this year. Mike likes it, you'll probably like it, even though I don't. And... That does not count against as part of my failure to achieve one game per minute. No. So next up is Snow Tails, which is a dog sled racing game. That's right. Uh, which I think they actually implement pretty well as far as a, a racing game goes. So like a, a lot of, of racing games, you have in this a series of interconnected board pieces that might be straightaways, they might be curves. And what you are doing, like I said, is you're, you're racing a dog sled team. It's, you have a little player board in front of you that has three spots where you can put down cards. One is your break, one is your left dog, and one is your right dog. Really, when you're mushing, you have more than two dogs, but whatever. Two dogs per sled in this game. And on each turn, what you'll do is you will add up the total strength of your dogs, subtract your break, and that is how many spaces you will move. If your dogs are balanced... You know, you've got a four and a four, something like that. Then you move in a straight line. If your dogs are imbalanced, then you will curve. Sometimes you want to move in a straight line. Sometimes you want to curve, like when the track does. And so you have a hand of five cards, and each turn you can play down up to three cards if they have the same number. 
and the numbers are from one to five. And so you have to try to look at your hand and figure out how you can best adjust your current lean and speed in order to to make it around the track ahead. You have to be careful not to go too fast because if you this is not a race where you can meaningfully take out another sled, but you could hurt yourself, you could run into a tree, you could run into a, the edge of the track, and every time you do that, you dent your sled, which will permanently reduce your hand size. You, they actually give you a dent card, so you still got five cards in your hand, but one of them is a dead card, so that way you don't have to try to remember separately how many dents that you have. I definitely like this. It was straightforward. It did not try to be more complex in a thing. You know, like you've played some racing games like this where they try to add in 17 different kinds of weapons to shoot each other, and it just makes things messy and too much to track and doesn't really add much to the game. But this, I I thought, was a a pretty elegant way of handling it. And how many dog sled racing games are there? Not not a lot. Not a lot. That was Snow Tails. I also have hit up Dos Rios, or Two Rivers, In this game, you have a city and two lakes at the bottom of the board, and you have these two rivers, the the Green River and the Brown River, at the top. And at the start of the game, you array out randomly the terrain, and then the river will form a particular track down into these lakes. They're hexes, so if it it hits one hex, and there's three downriver possible ways for it to go, and It'll go into a field before it goes into a forest because the forest is higher than the field, and it'll go into the forest before it'll go into hills, right? Because water generally does not flow uphill all that much. But over the course of the game, you will build dams to alter the flow of the river. And the reason that you will do that is that you want to be on spots that the, you want to be on the field and forest spots that the river is irrigating when the at the appropriate times when the cards off of this card row at the top happen. So if the tobacco harvest comes up and you have guys on an irrigated tobacco spot, then you get money. And it's money for everything except for the forests, which gives you lumber, which lets you build more dams. And you use the money to build, to buy little houses. And then you, when you can put the house on the board and they function as a, they function like you have a guy on that spot, so you can harvest there even if you don't have a guy, and they can serve as protection, and and potentially serve as protection for your guy. And you win the game when you either get your four normal houses in your super house or hacienda, whatever it is, built, or if you have three and your hacienda and they're all irrigated. And so it's it's an interesting, it can be an interesting cutthroat little game. Because one up, upstream dam can just drastically change the course of the river. And you can have these, these poor rivers going all over the place. And then you can, every once in a while, somebody will get hit by the bandits. There's one, as you go through the deck, there's one bandit card for each river where the bandits will come down river and they'll take out the, the gringos that are, sorry, gauchos? I don't know, whatever it is. I guess it's gauchos. Because it's gauchos, yeah, because it's cowboy. Probably. But that was uh, Dos Rios. I, I like that. Cities. Uh, it's by Martin F. For some reason, his name seemed to be displayed very prominently, perhaps because the name is so generic. This game is a true multiplayer solitaire game. You remember, you remember Mike, how Trevor always used to say, well, I hate stuff like Dominion because it's just multiplayer solitaire? Yeah. Yeah, I got nothing on this. Trevor would hate this. 
Trevor would hate this because it is it is multiplayer solitaire. What you have, you can tell because you can play it with any number of people as long as you have enough pieces, enough copies of the game. You can play with any number of people. Each player has a set of 30 tiles and one of the players will shuffle up their stack of tiles and they'll flip up four starting tiles and then every turn they'll flip up another tile and each other player goes and gets that tile from their stack they're numbered one to 30 to make it easier to keep track of and then what you're going to be doing with these tiles is placing them out to form a city you'll ultimately go through 16 tiles over the course of the game and you've got parks and you've got lakes and you've got um whatever red and yellow were uh, <laughs> you score points depending on your layout so i think red was a terrace over the course of the game, you put out the tile, and then you can put out your your people. You have a fixed number of them, but when you put out a new tile, you can move one over to it. And so if they end up on a terrace, for example, you get points for all of the park and lake tiles that your guy has line of sight on, and then line of sight is blocked by other red terrace spots. The yellow one, you want your guy to be in a big yellow area that's bordered by a red area. Parks... You get points for the entire park plus any uh, lakes that are bordering the park. So it's that sort of thing. But really, it's each player is just in their own little world. Everybody get, everybody is getting the exact same sequence of tiles. And so it's basically just seeing who can play this solitaire game the best. Now, for some people, the fact that it is just multiplayer solitaire means that it's a no-go. Other people will find that to be perfectly fine. I'm perfectly fine with that in moderation. I wouldn't want to do that all the time, but playing one from time to time was perfectly fine. I liked this, but I can see some people finding it a little dry. Two games left. The next one is Splendor, which I played, what, at the beginning of this month? I thought I put out a tweet like, this was the best game I played this weekend. I did my written review of it this Sunday. And it's scheduled to come out tomorrow, which is Wednesday, so by the time anybody hears it, it'll already be up. And in that review, I said, I think that this is going to be one of the biggest games of the year. So, of course, on Monday, it got nominated for the Spiel des Jahres, because I like to make my predictions after it's already after the, the thing has already come to pass. The Spiel des Jahres is not quite that, but okay. I don't know how significant the Spiel des Jahres is as far as identifying the best games, especially for hobby gamers, especially for people who tend to like more aggressive or thematic games, but getting nominated for a Spiel des Jahres is essentially an assurance that a game is going to be monetarily successful. Yeah. So so there's that. So I guess to me, the fact that it's nominated for a Spiel des Jahres doesn't mean anything as far as whether or not it's a game I like, but I like this game, and I think it's a fantastic gateway game, and I think that because it takes some basic Eurogame economic engine building things and really strips them down in a way that is going to be understandable by a casual gamer. So what you have in this game is you're going to have 12 cards out, and each card costs some number of gems, and then it will permanently reduce the cost of all future cards by one. So at the start of the game, you have nothing, and you take each of your turns, and you've got these really nice poker chips that are in there, and each poker chip is a different kind of 
of gem and you do one thing on your turn. You can take three gems of different colors. You can take two gems of the same color as long as, you know, half the stack is left or, I mean, there has to be at least four left. You can cash your gems in to buy one of the cards that are out in the middle of the table, at which point it immediately gets refilled. Or you can take your turn to reserve one of the cards in the front of the table. So you get a little a gold piece, which is a wild card chip, and then you take that card and you're the only one who's allowed to buy it. The reason that you build an engine is right at the start of the game, you're buying entirely off of the four cards at the bottom. And those are not worth any victory points, but they'll take you four or five chips. And like I said, each card has a color and it reduces all of your costs for the rest of the game by that amount. So if I have two red and two green and two black and there's a card out there that costs three red and three green and three black, I just have to discard one of each and my existing cards will cover the rest. So as the game goes on, you buy more of those ones that aren't worth victory points and now you can start affording the ones in the second row, which have higher costs, but will give you victory points in addition to reducing your further costs. So you've sort of got, you've got tactical decisions as far as figuring out which chips to get to achieve your immediate objective while keeping in mind that other players may grab a particular card before you. So do you want to commit to a, uh, that, that's the card I want, but if somebody else takes it, these chips are not at all what the other cards out there need. So do I want to risk that? And then you've got this sort of broad strategic decision of at what point do I stop buying the sort of investment non-victory point ones at the bottom and, and just start ignoring those, even if I can get them for free to start getting ones that have points. And then you also have to have a little bit of strategic impetus from these bonus tiles that you put out right above the cards. And what the bonus tiles do is at the end of your turn, if you have a certain quantity of cards that you've already bought, then you get the bonus tile, which you know is worth two or three or four or five victory points. So it might be, oh, if this one, if you have four red cards and four black cards, then you take that bonus tile. When anybody hits 15 or more points, it triggers the end of the game. You play the rest of the rounds so that everybody has an even, even number of terms, turns, most victory points wins. It's not heavy. If you're like, I'm the serious gamer and I can only play complicated things or I can only play combative things, this isn't going to be for you. But it does actually have decision making and it's something that, that you can, I think, really get people who are not hobby gamers into. I like Lords of Waterdeep better than, than Splendor, which doesn't really say much because I like Lords of Waterdeep a lot. But it reminds me of Lords of Waterdeep and that Lords of Waterdeep is a worker placement game that people get. And you can take it and you can play a game with this worker placement mechanic that I like with, with people that you normally couldn't get to play those games. And I think that the same will be true of Splendor with this general concept of engine building. So I, I think it's going to be a very successful game, and I think it's definitely worth checking out. The final thing I have is Forbidden Desert. Forbidden Desert is an iteration on Forbidden Island. Like Forbidden Island, it's a co-op game. Forbidden Island had you dropped on a deserted island. Forbidden Desert has you dropped in the middle of a desert. Over the course of the game, the players have to work together to assemble the pieces of a flying machine so you can fly away. And 
you have a, a certain number of action points for every for the characters each turn, and so you have to move and dig through the sand, and then at the end of every one of your turns, you flip up a couple of tards, the sands will start to cover up the tiles, and you have to dig out so you can explore in them, and you find the pieces. It's pretty creative, actually. For each artifact, or each part of the the flying machine, there are two tiles in this 5x5 five five grid that have that on it and so whatever the intersection of those two tiles is is where the piece is so you find one and it kind of gives you an idea so i know it's somewhere in this row or this column but you got to go find somewhere else on the board to find that other one to tell you where to drop the piece down and then you can also have sandstorms which actively move the pieces around on the board i like it better than forbidden island it still definitely has one player just telling everybody what to do, potential problems. It can also be brutally difficult, more than you would expect for what's a, a relatively straightforward sort of game. So I'm hoping that none of you had a stopwatch on how long it took me to go through those 13 games. Now, you were good until we stopped in the Marvel Masters. I think <laughs> after that, I kind of derailed. <laughs> Not including Marvel Masters. Yeah. So, uh, so there you go. 13 games in God only knows how many minutes. And. <laughs> this is future Chris interjecting to wrap up this episode. An ornamental arrangement was going to be one single episode, but as you can tell, it's gone on for a healthy length already, and there's just as much material about the legal issues surrounding the lawsuit by Wizards of the Coast against Cryptozoic and Hex Entertainment over the Hex Digital MMO slash TCG. So I'm going to go ahead and end this episode here and invite you to come back in a few days for an Ornamental Arrangement Part 2 where we will address those legal issues. Until then, you can visit us at strangeassembly.com, subscribe to the podcast there or on iTunes. You can also find us at Strange Assembly on Twitter and facebook.com slash strangeassembly. I always like to hear from you, so you can email me directly, chris at strangeassembly.com. Until then, for Mike Cook and Rich Bowers-Dean, I'm Chris Stevenson, and you've been listening to Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming. (laughs) 